do you distinguish between a state of psychosis and a state of inspiration? It strikes me as dangerous ground. A few years ago, I was living in such a state of inspiration. I'd been taking in all of this information on the neural correlates of consciousness and the leading neuroscientific theories, and I was beginning to put new ideas together. I was drawing figures, filling notebooks with hastily scrawled hypotheses. I was jumping out of bed in the middle of the night to write things down before I forgot them. I was on a roll. It was exciting, and it was a bit scary. I felt as though I had a deep responsibility to capture the moment, to get my ideas into solid form. I had access, at least, at least that's how it felt, to important truths that nobody else was aware of. I was the vessel for something extremely valuable. Well, maybe so and maybe not, right? Isn't that what it would have felt like if I was in a state of psychosis? Wouldn't I have felt just like that? Good news, though. As I look back from the present moment upon what I was doing at that time, I'm proud of it. It was good work. I probably threw out most of those hastily scrawled notes and figures, but when I turn through an old notebook which has been buried on my desk, with every page a mess of concepts and idea webs, the content is messy, but worthwhile. It is the shown work like the steps of an advanced math problem, of an intelligent, if a bit frantic, process. The result ultimately was the first paper I published on the TICL. But what if it had been different? What if those manic notes revealed conspiratorial ramblings about political figures, or an infatuation with some celebrity, or a transcript of conversations had with a wise old gnome in the back garden? The terrifying possibility is that the experience from my perspective might have been comparable. All of it might make perfect sense within the logic of my own mind. Aldous Huxley, describing his experience on Masculine in the Doors of Perception, said, quote, It was inexpressibly wonderful, wonderful to the point almost of being terrifying, and suddenly I had an inkling of what it must feel like to be mad. Schizophrenia has its heavens as well as its hells and purgatories. I remember what an old friend, dead these many years, told me about his mad wife. One day in the early stages of the disease, when she still had her lucid intervals, he had gone to talk to her, about their children. She listened for a time, then cut him short. How could he bear to waste his time on a couple of absent children, when all that really mattered here and now was the unspeakable beauty of the patterns he made in his brown tweed jacket every time he moved his arms? Alas, the paradise of cleansed perception, of pure one-sided contemplation, was not to endure. The blissful intermissions became rarer, became briefer, until finally there were no more of them. There was only horror." Unquote. More than 50 years later, it seems to me that his observation of some commonality between psychedelic experience and schizophrenia holds up, at least in terms of some aspects of psychotic phenomenology. It is now generally understood that the symptoms of schizophrenia are associated with abnormal dopaminergic function, and we know that the direct target of canonical psychedelic drugs are in the serotonin system. I would suggest, if one was pursuing a state of terrifying psychosis, that a more direct route would be through high-dose amphetamines instead. I've recently been reading about the idea that psychosis, such as that which occurs in schizophrenia, is a matter of aberrant salience. This idea rests upon the function of dopamine in motivational salience. To put it simply, attention can come in two varieties, one which is bottom-up and one which is top-down. The bottom-up sort has to do with the means by which certain stimuli grab our attention. If a dog suddenly barks nearby, you will take immediate note. 
not because you were interested in what the dog was doing and thus directing your focus toward it. Rather, the barking was a stimulus which you cannot help but be made aware of. This is what is meant by salience. As you were jogging along the sidewalk, minding your own business, suddenly a salient stimulus has gotten your attention. This is different from top-down attention or voluntary focus. You might be jogging along, counting each crack in the sidewalk deliberately for some reason. In order to keep accurate count, you are focusing on the task. You are using top-down attentional resources in that case. There is ample evidence for the central involvement of dopamine in states of psychosis, whether occurring due to mental illness or drug abuse. In a paper by Shatish Kapoor, the involvement of dopamine in salience is reviewed in detail. The paper proposes abnormal salience mediated by dopamine to be a key factor in psychosis. In the following passage, Kapoor explains the role of dopamine in motivational salience. He writes, quote, According to this hypothesis, dopamine mediates the conversion of the neural representation of an external stimulus from a neutral and cold bit of information into an attractive or aversive entity. In particular, the mesolimbic dopamine system is seen as a critical component in the attribution of salience, a process whereby events and thoughts come to grab attention, drive action, and influence goal-directed behavior because of their association with reward or punishment. This role of dopamine in the attribution of motivational salience does not exclude the roles suggested by previous theorists. Instead, it provides an interface whereby the hedonic subjective pleasure the ability to predict reward, and the learning mechanisms allow the organism to focus its efforts on what it deems valuable, and allows for the seamless conversion of motivation into action. When used in this sense, the concept of motivational salience brings us a step closer to concepts such as decision utility, that are used to explain and understand the evaluations and choices that humans make. Conceived in this way, the role of dopamine as a mediator of motivational salience provides a valuable heuristic bridge to address the brain-mind question of psychosis and schizophrenia." Unquote. This is interesting because dopamine is associated with the sense of value, sometimes conceptualized as reward. But dopamine drives seeking behavior. It motivates excitement about the pursuit of something. It's the thrill of the chase, the sense of getting close to something extremely significant. Dopamine signals that you are onto something, that you are moving toward a valuable goal. It's not the same as satiation or the feeling of completion. You might expect that the feeling we want to achieve is the rewarding sense of euphoria that comes at the end of the adventure, whatever the adventure is. It's the treasure, or the orgasm, or the job completed. But at such moments, the dopamine levels drop off. That kind of reward is driven by endogenous opioids and the like. It's a good thing in its own right. But the sense of approach toward the treasure or the orgasm or the job completed, that's where the action is. That's the excitement that makes cocaine and methamphetamines, gambling and risk-taking and flirtation so agreeable. The feeling is so good that we can easily become highly addicted to sources of dopamine, yet too much dopamine is known to cause psychosis. Kapoor writes, quote, I use psychosis in this paper to refer to the experience of delusions, fixed false beliefs, and hallucinations, aberrant perceptions, and the secondarily related behavior. Several empirical observations about psychosis demand explanation. First, endogenous psychosis evolves slowly, not overnight. For many patients, it evolves through a series of stages. 
a stage of heightened awareness and emotionality combined with a sense of anxiety and impasse, a drive to make sense of the situation, and then usually relief and a new awareness as the delusion crystallizes and hallucinations emerge. Second, drugs such as amphetamine do not cause psychosis in a single exposure for most normal humans, although after chronic administration, they do produce a picture resembling schizophrenia. However, for patients who have experienced psychosis before, even a single dose of amphetamine causes a predictable but temporary exacerbation and return of the patient's own symptoms. Third, once the symptoms are manifest, delusions are essentially disorders of inferential logic as most delusional beliefs are not impossible, just highly improbable. Hallucinations by most accounts are exaggerated, amplified, and aberrantly recognized internal percepts. Under normal circumstance, it is the stimulus-linked release of dopamine that mediates the acquisition and expression of appropriate motivational saliences in response to the subject's experiences and predispositions." Unquote. So the author defines psychosis, regardless of its cause, as experiences of delusions and hallucinations. Delusions are fixed false beliefs, and hallucinations are aberrant perceptions. As I consider my own experience, the period of time over which I was highly inspired, even obsessed with developing a theory of human consciousness, I was not psychotic by these defining characteristics. That's good. I didn't think I was. What compels me here is to wonder how one could know with any certainty whether one was in such a state of psychosis. Most of the time we need not wonder. Life is going normally. We are behaving as we usually do. We might be under stress or worrying about things, but nothing extraordinary about our experience requires an explanation. Members of my immediate family, had they been watching closely, might have observed strange patterns of behavior on my part for sure. Two o'clock in the morning, Jesse is out on the back porch pacing sucking down cigarettes and gesticulating wildly while talking to himself in an intense, impassioned tone. Hmm. Not necessarily that far outside of the norm, but worth keeping an eye on. As for what I was writing, if anyone else could have been able to read it, they would in all likelihood not have been able to distinguish it from nonsense. They hadn't read the papers and the books that I was reading. I could have been a genius or a madman. At times, as I was in that frame of mind, a period of intense creative and intellectual output, I became really emotional. Not in the everything is beautiful sense of Huxley on mescaline, rather I would break down crying under the overwhelming weight of what I was working on. There were insights which I felt to be the sole possessor of in the whole world. If I don't write this down, if I don't get this knot untangled, then no one else will do so. They haven't put together what I am putting together. I see something, something which has never been seen. Under such circumstances, one checks themselves to ensure that they are in their right mind. I mean, what are the chances that I'm onto something that big relative to the chances that I'm delusional? Maybe the difference between those things is not so great. Moreover, if I would not have produced the writing that I did and the publication of the major ideas, at least some of them, I might now doubt whether I was in my right mind back then. Kapoor goes on, quote, Dopamine mediates the process of salience acquisition and expression. But under normal circumstances, it does not create this process. It is proposed that in psychosis, there is a dysregulated dopamine transmission that leads to stimulus-independent release of dopamine. This neurochemical aberration usurps the normal process of contextually driven salience attribution and leads to aberrant assignment of salience to external objects and internal representations. Thus, 
Dopamine, which under normal conditions is a mediator of contextually relevant saliences, in the psychotic state becomes a creator of saliences, albeit aberrant ones. It is postulated that before experiencing psychosis, patients develop an exaggerated release of dopamine independent of and out of, out of synchrony with the context. This leads to the assignment of inappropriate salience and motivational significance to external and internal stimuli." Unquote. So we can use my heightened state of intellectual inspiration as an example, in principle, as the way this dopamine system is supposed to work. I was reading a lot of books on the topic of consciousness before and after my trip to Venice, where I was introduced to integrated information theory by Giulio Tononi. I had some notes from the trip, too. As I was reading, I began to get excited about a burgeoning understanding of certain concepts. I was intrigued. Certain things made perfect sense to me, but I saw that something didn't add up. I was beginning to have some new ideas of my own. This is where the state of inspiration began. Presumably, dopamine was involved in the process. A great deal of thinking and writing productively is driven or motivated by a certain creative sense. It's the same with reading a good book. If you're in the right mood, these activities are invigorating. Reading or writing on a topic of interest is best done in the spirit of curiosity and creative engagement. Probably the level of dopamine being released as one reads or writes about an interesting topic tracks with the current level of interest. This is the salience of the ideas on the page from the subjective perspective. What would aberrant salience be like in this situation? If you were reading and subject to aberrant salience, you might focus on the wrong words and phrases, completely missing the point of the passage. You might notice the amount of times a certain word occurs rather than the meaning of the sentences. You might find yourself engaging with the text as a kind of secret code to be unraveled in terms of numerology or some such nonsense. The key difference then between normal salience and aberrant salience has to do with the appropriateness of attention. In a given instance, are you laughing because the author said something intended to be funny? Or because of your own little inside joke? Do you have a good sense of humor or a good case of madness? Kapoor continues, quote, At its earliest stage, this induces a somewhat novel and perplexing state marked by exaggerated importance of certain percepts and ideas. Given that most patients come to the attention of clinicians after the onset of psychosis, phenomenological accounts of the onset of psychosis are largely anecdotal or post hoc. However, patients report experiences such as, I developed a greater awareness of, my senses were sharpened, I became fascinated by the little insignificant things around me. Sights and sounds possessed a keenness that he had never experienced before. It was as if parts of my brain awoke which had been dormant, or my senses seemed alive, things seemed clear-cut, I noticed things I had never noticed before. Most patients report that something in the world around them is changing, leaving them somewhat confused and looking for an explanation. This stage of perplexity and anxiety has been recognized by several authors, and it's best captured in the accounts of patients. I felt that there was some overwhelming significance in this, or I felt like I was putting a piece of the puzzle together. Unquote. Dear God, that's what it felt like for me, too. You see what I mean? It's like psychosis is maladaptive inspiration. It's the same thing driven by the same dopamine, but in a misplaced context. One final passage from Shatish Kapoor. Quote, Delusions in this framework are a top-down cognitive explanation that the individual imposes on these experiences of aberrant salience in an effort to make sense of them. 
Since delusions are constructed by the individual, they're imbued with the psychodynamic themes relevant to the individual and are embedded in the cultural context of the individual. This explains how the same neurochemical dysregulation leads to variable phenomenological expression. A patient in Africa struggling to make sense of aberrant salience is much more likely to accord them to the evil ministrations of a shaman, while the one living in Toronto is more likely to see them as the machinations of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Once the patient arrives at such an explanation, it provides an insight relief, or a psychotic insight, and serves as a guiding cognitive scheme for further thoughts and actions. It drives the patients to find further confirmatory evidence in the glances of strangers, in the headlines of newspapers, and in the lapel pins of newscasters. Hallucinations in this framework arise from a conceptually similar and more direct process, the abnormal salience of the internal representations of percepts and memories. This could account for the gradation in the severity of hallucinations, whereby some people, to some people they seem like their own internal thoughts, to others their own voice, to others the voice of a third party, and to some others the voice of an alien coming from without. So long as these events, delusions and hallucinations, remain private affairs, they are not an illness by society's standards. It is only when the patient chooses to share these mental experiences with others, or when these thoughts and percepts become so salient that they start affecting the behavior of the individual that they cross over into the domain of clinical psychosis." Unquote. Insight relief. That really is scary. The parallel between an episode of psychosis and my own revelatory experience of inspiration is disturbing. Whatever it was, it was filled with purpose and personal meaning. It was emotionally difficult, thrilling, but petrifying, productive to the point of obsession. I guess this time it was a state of inspiration. But what about the next time? Will I know the difference? <laughs>